You're listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner Podcast with your host, Andy Plymer. For someone to explain. Bringing you up-to-date coaching concepts from the world of rugby. Sharing ideas to make the game better. Okay, welcome to episode number 39 of the Rugby Coaches Corner Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Plymer, and joining me today is Murray Kinsella. Murray is a sports journalist based in Ireland who writes extensively about the technical aspects of rugby. He writes primarily with the 42.ie, a news source for Irish sports fans, but has also worked with TV3, Airsport and the rugby site. His analysis work is a great resource for rugby coaches around the world and it's a pleasure to have him on the show, so welcome Murray. Thanks for having me, Uh, thanks very much for the kind words and I've been loving the podcast, Uh, certainly a learning resource for me. And um, I'm pretty flattered that you asked me, so it's a pleasure to be here. Oh, awesome. Thanks very much. And uh, stoked you're listening. And uh, yeah, it's great great to have you on. And you know, like, like I said in the intro, I, I've, I've followed a lot of your analysis you've done in the past. And in terms of learning for me as a coach, it, it's really helped. So thanks for all you're doing there too. Yeah, no problem. I'm, I'm, again, I'm flattered uh, that any coaches really are re- reading the work. I think I'm probably a little bit behind in, in knowledge in terms of technical and tactical stuff towards a lot of coaches. But uh, yeah, I'm doing my best. I'm trying and I'm constantly watching rugby and trying to speak to coaches and, and learn from any resource I can get my hands on, really. Yeah, could be could be worse things to do with your time, huh? It's a lot of fun. <laughs> cool. All right. So um, what's what's a bit of a backstory on your education and your sporting ground to uh, sporting background to where you are now? Yeah, so uh, I'm from Waterford in the southeast of Ireland. Um, grew up there. Went to Waterpark Rugby Club is where my kind of rugby uh, career began, I suppose. It's a pretty small club, but pretty proud club. And they just got a uh, Ireland international through recently, Jack O'Donoghue. Some people might be aware of him. So that's a, a big kind of boost for the club down in Waterford. Um, I played in school as well, in Newtown School, um, which wasn't a big rugby school, but we kind of trained four days a week, five days a week, a match as well. So actually got our hands on the ball an awful lot, a lot of tip rugby, touch rugby kind of stuff. So, yeah, it was a great kind of background for me. Um, I then went on and played underage rugby for Munster, um, under 19 and 20 and I managed to get a couple of caps for Ireland under 19 as well um, went into the Munster Academy and spent a couple of years there at the same time that I was studying in Limerick um, I did a degree in English and new media so I've kind of combined the two of those eventually into uh, this career but uh, yeah it kind of set me up nicely to have that bit of playing background I think um, and certainly gave me a bit of a head start maybe with the knowledge and, and kind of analysis of the game um, although I probably didn't grasp every opportunity I had in that regard. But uh, yeah, definitely a useful kind of background for coming into this profession now. Oh, absolutely. Sounds, sounds great. And so, so in terms of your analysis work, who's, who have been some of your, your main influences? Yeah, so I guess from my, from my time at Munster, um, a guy called Ian Costello, he's head coach now at Nottingham over in England in the championship. Um, but he was in the academy at the time, and he was also my club coach in, in UL Bohemians in Limerick. Uh, really strong on the technical and tactical side of the game, and, and he just loved his analysis. He lives and breathes rugby, so um, he was a big influence, I'd say, in that regard. Uh, again, I probably didn't, I just probably didn't engage with it in that way as much when I was playing, which is mm. kind of bizarre to say. But um, I don't know. Like honestly, my knowledge of the game now is very different to what it was when I was playing you know, even getting Monster A caps and not really thinking about the game all that much, you know, I just fit into the starter play, 
then try and stick to the structure and, and not really think about the game too much. But then when you kind of get out of it, you almost think about all the learning you've taken on board. And, mm. um, you know, we were doing an analysis every day, really breaking down every kind of aspect of your game and um, looking at team trends, trying to look at other teams and what they were doing and other players as well. So, um, yeah, that kind of time was, was really good for the analysis I'm doing now. You also had a guy like Jason Holland, who was with Munster at the time, that I had a, a couple of caps for the A team, and he's obviously with the Canes now and a, a brilliant young yeah, coach. Yeah. Um, so he was great to get exposed to. Um, and also, like now, day to day, just working as a, I suppose, on the reporting side of being a rugby journalist, you're you're engaging with coaches all the time. Guys like Joe Schmidt and Bernard Jackman, people like Gregor Townsend, basically anyone you interview, you're trying to get whatever knowledge you can out of them. Um, and all those guys have been have been good, and they may encourage you one way or maybe suggest something that you got slightly wrong. So uh, that kind of feedback is great, even though coaches can be a little bit, um, I don't know, skeptical or wary of, co- of uh, journalists rather. Mm. So you're trying to get the balance there, but I suppose you're exposed to it all the time, even beyond the technical and tactical, I suppose that mindset as well. Like so many coaches now are talking about growth mindset and, and all this kind of stuff. And it really does rub off on you and, and you kind of try and translate it into your own work. Oh, that's great. And I think, I think the story you told there about, when you're playing compared to what you know now about the game, I think uh, a lot of coaches would uh, would also understand that. I know my first year of coaching, I I just realised how little about rugby I actually knew. Um, it's it's amazing. I, mean, I think a lot of players can probably relate to that as well. Like, even sometimes you see, like we'll probably talk about Italy and England at the weekend, but mm. some of the England players hadn't really been aware of that kind of aspect of the game, um, maybe hadn't seen it in action. And I think when you're playing you often tend not to really watch that much rugby apart from your analysis and your own games and you're very, very kind of self-focused. So I think like the biggest thing for me in the last couple of years beyond even influences is just watching as much rugby as I can and yeah. and always taking that kind of mindset of like, why why is this team doing this? Why is that player doing that? Um, and you can kind of learn an awful lot that way. So yeah, it's, it's a different mindset when, when you're playing. I know some players are very tactically aware, obviously, but I was certainly... Uh, pretty much straight up and do what I was told. Okay, so in, in, your, in your time that you've been doing the analysis work, uh, what, what have been some of the bigger changes you've seen to the game uh, over that, that period of time? Yeah, like I, th- I think the big biggest thing in the last, I don't know, five to ten years even is, is the defence in rugby. Um, mm. It's just so good now. Like recently we did a bit of a project looking back at amateur rugby on, on the 42.e, back to 1995. Um, and obviously it's a very, very different game, but you know, it's almost comical, the, the lack of defense there. Um, and even going into the early two thousands, there's just not much system, not much structure. Um, I, wa- I wonder how many, how many players were really working on their technique. Whereas now pretty much every player is proficient in, in all sorts of, of different kind of tackle techniques and the line speed. Now the consistency of it is really, really strong across the board. There's so much pressure being put on on the attack and I think that's one of the big trends really is that most teams now are using their their defense as an attacking weapon and trying to get the ball back and score and um, you're seeing that with most successful teams you know Saracens in England have been really good at that uh, the Highlanders of course down in Super Rugby and um, you know they score these amazing tries and people who check out the highlights probably go you know that's the rugby we should be playing up here in the northern hemisphere but a lot of it is down to their kind of kicking game and, and the pressure they put back on the opposition like that and working really hard on that kind of space in the pitch between the kick and actually following up on it. So I think that's probably the biggest thing that I've noticed in, in the last couple of years and it keeps going that way. And I think a lot of head coaches even who are probably spending a lot of time on, on attack before are almost focusing a little bit more on defence. 
Mm, yeah, and I think uh, there's you know strong influence, obviously, going back to you know the late '90s when people like Muggleton and uh, the like were 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 involved with. Uh, forming uh, a fairly structured defence into international sides. It's just kept growing and growing. And now you see a lot of ex-rugby league players like Farrell. And um, I don't know if uh, Les Kiss is ex-rugby league, but he's... Yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah, he's watching yeah. league. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah it, is, it has been a big thing. And like even Sean Edwards, I suppose, Wales, he's kind of, mm. I suppose, had so much credit for that original blitz thing and bringing it into Europe. And um, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of league influence. But I guess a lot of those guys coming over were very, very professional um, so it's not even just that they have better knowledge from playing, from having been in league. It's just the fact that they were a lot more professional, a lot more uh, kind of structured in their coaching and in, in terms of the systems they put in place on the pitch now. And mm. I think, you know, if you went on the pitch now with, without having good systems and structures, you had a look at the Sunwolves the other day uh, against the Hurricanes. I know they're playing a, a vastly superior bunch of individuals, but after two weeks of training without the chance to get their kind of systems and structures in place, mm -hmm. they were just utterly exposed. So... Yeah, it's the, it's the vital thing in rugby now because attacks obviously keep improving as well. And if your defence isn't there, you're you're just going to get um, exposed every time. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, let's let's move on to the Six Nations. Um, I, I got to say, this year's Six Nations tournament, we're only three game three rounds into it, but it's just been outstanding uh, for mine. And uh, you know, you personally, what have what have you taken from from the tournament in terms of like general themes across all teams that you're seeing in attack and defence? Yeah, so I think it has been kind of developing to a more um, a kind of wider style of rugby and teams are holding their width better um, maybe not even going to the width all the time, but a team like Scotland probably is a good example under Vern Cotter. Mm. They still do a lot of the one-out runner stuff. There's a lot of multi-phase attack, obviously, in the 22 when, when the defense is full of, of bodies, uh, the front line is full of bodies, but they hold the width really well. And then when they've got to eight or nine phases, their wings and their fullbacks, Stuart Hogg, are they're, they're, they're in those channels waiting for the opportunity and, and getting better at ident identifying sorry, the opportunity to, to go to that width that they've held. Like previously, even with a team like Ireland, they really narrowed up in the 22 and, and the chance to do that just wasn't there. So I think that is a bit of a team. Um, pretty much all the teams now are, are playing with a very uh, positive mindset between the two 22s and, and keeping a lot of ball in hand. Um, the kicking game... In the Six Nations, it has always been a strength and, and will continue to be. But I think generally it's just a more, um, I suppose, a freer kind of attacking philosophy and um, allowing players to make those decisions a little bit more. So it's been really positive. I think certainly fans and spectators are, are loving it. Um, would, would you go along with that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think every, every team's got their own subtleties and we'll get to that when we when we look in, um, you know, go through the individual teams. But... I see a lot of, uh, in defence, I'm seeing, um, you know, some Brian O'Driscoll style 13s shooting up to really block that outside channel to try and nullify that wide attack after, like you say, after a team's gone through a couple of phases, you'll see that real decision-making aspect come into it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have my notes here in front of me, and that's one of the things. You're almost seeing the kind of edge of the, the defence take a probably a bigger risk than before. Like, guys mm. are going up when there's overlaps there, in the past, you might have sat off or, or maybe shot up and then drifted onto mm -hmm. the edge. But now they're going and they're going all the way. And and if if you don't make that play, you know it's going to be a possible try. There's there's a kind of I suppose a ballsier decision making on the on the edge of the defence now. And and certainly with Ireland again, you mentioned Andy Farrell. That's what he wants to see. The times Ireland have been exposed uh, in wide channels, it's been you know people are saying you know their defence is too narrow. But 
if you look back, it's probably those times where the wing or the 13, whoever is on the edge, just didn't go. They, they kind of came halfway and stopped. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of the defence coaches want those, even with an overlap, just go and, and, and stop the ball. All right. So looking looking at the individual teams, what what um, if we we start with just um, France and looking at how they're playing the game this year? I've I've I'm really enjoying watching them play. They're I wouldn't say the France of old, but you know it's totally different. You can't compare generations, but they're playing a really attractive brand of running. Um, they rely on some huge huge men coming through the middle, but. They've potentially got a world-class backline with Seren and Lopez and Lamarat and, and Fufana uh, when he's healthy. But Fiku has been, you know, he's been amazing. And then, you know, you look at you look at the forwards of Garado and Pickamoles and, and then uh, Gordon. He's been a real bolter at seven. Um, so they're they're playing great rugby. I think. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed the kind of slight resurgence. I always I'm always cautious about getting too excited about France because. Every year we kind of talk them up and then they let us down a little bit. Break but yeah. yeah, that's it. But um, I definitely have a soft spot for French rugby. I actually spent a year over there um, just after university, after I'd finished up kind of with the Munster Academy. I, I spent a year playing all the way down in Federal Trois, which is like the fifth tier of French rugby. So it was a bit wild and there was mm-hmm. a lot of 30-man brawls and things like that. But I also got a great insight into into French rugby and I did a lot of traveling around to all the clubs. So yeah, I definitely have a soft spot for them. Um, they've... They've been really good since November. Um, I think Guinovez is adding a little bit of structure uh, mm. and shape into their attack, as well as kind of building on that, I suppose, that kind of general movement philosophy he's always had in Toulouse, whereby you, you're kind of playing what you're seeing and it's mm. heads up and players making decisions for themselves. I think we've mentioned the defences being so organised that it, you, you often can't have that kind of classic Jouet French style anymore. Mm. It just it, You just need a little bit of, sh- a bit of shape. And it's interesting that when they add that bit of shape, it actually kind of brings out the more traditionally uh, kind of flair, flair side of, of French rugby because players have now a little bit more time and space and they're in the right place to actually use their decision-making, use their footwork, use their acceleration and all those individual skills that they always have. Um, they've kind of moved into that one-three-three-one shape in attack mm-hmm. uh, where they're holding Louis Picamos usually in the left kind of 15-meter yeah. channel yeah. and Gorado out in the right. Then you have your three pods of kind of really heavy ball carrying forwards Massive. in between the two fifteens. So mm. um, it, it's something that they're not really doing particularly brilliantly at the moment. And I think f- when you're working with those French players who probably haven't been uh, brought up in in shapes like that, or who have been brought up with the style of play where you're just kind of getting around the pitch and and making it up as you go along with your kind of individual skills, they are kind of struggling to find that shape or to keep that shape at times. Like Australia played the one three three one and. And they're unbelievably disciplined in keeping the shape. Like literally every time they're in phase attack, you can clearly pick out their their shape there. So France are probably a, a work in progress in that regard. But I mm. think like you've mentioned all those brilliant individuals. And I think if you're kind of creating more opportunities for guys like that to, uh, I suppose, flit around those those forward pods and, and work off Louis Picmos in a 15-meter channel when he's running against, say, an outside center or a wing where he's always yes. going to win that contest... Um, they'll, they'll be in a better place so I think mm-hmm. yeah it's positive and, and off the pitch as well they're getting their act together as well Bernard Laporte is a he's a really good kind of rugby man he's in charge of the FF4 now um, and he, already he's talking about kind of union contracts for players mm-hmm. so they've time with that. the national team um, so yeah I mean that stuff helps you as, as a coach you know just having more times time with the players is, is unbelievably valuable um, and they've had that before this and during this Six Nations actually they you know before the Ireland match 
last year at that time of year they were playing top 14 rugby but this year they had a rest weekend and more chance to train with the national team so like it's scary to think how good France could be if they really get their act together I remember Paul O'Connell saying to me once that you know if Joe Schmidt had his hands on those players and really got them organized no one could stop them so mm. uh, let's hope they don't get too organized yeah, well, Joe, Joe signed for a couple more years, so that's good. But um, I always, uh, I, I, I've always thought that they're they're a team that hasn't won a World Cup that should have. Um, and you know, the fact that you know this was the first Six Nations where they've actually been together as a squad for the entire time. They don't go back to their clubs, and then, like you said, uh, they they're kind of mirroring the Irish model where they they sign thirty uh, players to the national team, not and then distribute those to the the club sides. Um, I, that. You know, look out. I think that's um, that's scary, but like you say, you can't get too uh, too overconfident there, with because uh, there could be some kind of internal revolt, and uh, it all goes up in the air. That's it. Yeah. Uh, you have to be careful what you what you wish for. But yeah, yeah. huge population. Like, and as you say, like lots of amazing athletes. So I think the raw materials are there. Um, I don't know. I think I, I guess I wonder what it'd be like for you, from your point of view as a coach, like to have players that are so brought up in a system like that where they're very individualistic, and then mm-hmm. trying to put structure around that I guess that would be a, a huge challenge yeah well I think uh, I think where they are vulnerable is um, when they when they are playing that one three three one is on turnover ball uh, from attack to defense that's where that's where that there, there's going to be that split second of uh, you know uncertainty and a bit of uh, disorganization and that's where some teams can really pounce on them yeah absolutely and, and interesting then they, they seem to be still most dangerous when they get a turnover even against Ireland last weekend mm. You know, the two times they looked most threatening almost were when they broke out of their 22 after knock-ons or after yeah, one turnover. Yeah, did one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it. And Nakatasi the other time. Mm. So they're always going to have that. But yeah, a lot of, lot of threat there and, and definitely improving, I think. Yeah, cool. All right, well, on to Scotland, uh, another another favourite of mine. Vern Cotter's done amazing things there. And they what a, what a, what a second half against Wales on the weekend. And um, I, I just love the way that... You know they seem to be playing, relying very heavily on Finn Russell, and then he then links with his outside backs like Hogg, um, Maitland when well, he wasn't selected last time, but uh, Visser uh, that that try that Visser scored versus Wales in the second half was a was a perfect example where they they really rely on him to you know some big ball carriers like the Gray brothers in the midfield, and then linking linking with Finn Russell to link with his outside backs is uh, is a big uh, theme that I'm seeing there. What about you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's it. They've they've always had the kind of huge work rate in between the 15-meter channels, and then mm-hmm. they've linked that now to the individual skills that they've probably always have and haven't always utilized. Uh, yeah, like Finn Russell's getting nice and flat to the oh, game line. That's great. And yeah. his range of passing is, is really beautiful to watch. So he's dragging the best out of all the players around them and demanding that they get up and, and, and challenge the defence. Um, mm-hmm. And you saw that exactly. The great example where Hogg, literally the only thing he could do was c- catch and pass uh, mm-hmm. really accurately. An, an unbelievably difficult skill, but he pulled off brilliantly. Um, I'm enjoying him on counter-attack as well. I think oh, yeah. um, the whole team is kind of really more so aware than ever that they have a role to play in his counter-attacking. You're seeing the guys like the kick escort uh, where they're kind of blocking I suppose or, or shadowing chasers shepherding mm. the, the guys chasing the kick and giving Hogg just that split second or that that time to land after he catches the ball and then take off where he's so dangerous and so I think yeah we've seen probably more uh, cohesive focus on allowing him get those opportunities and um, one of the things actually I noticed in the Ireland match was interesting defensively it's only a kind of, I suppose a micro little skill mm-hmm. but it was really important and um, because Ireland's kind of 
uh, work on the ground after they've been tackled is always really exceptional. I think yeah. Joe Smith calls it body ball, um, and he's got massive demands there. You know, if someone's turned over, the first thing he'll look at is, is the ball carrier. And all the players pretty much, they kind of fear the review if they've been turned over <laughs> and they haven't fought enough on the ground. Mm. So, yeah, like that's been a big theme in rugby across the board is guys rolling and twisting and turning and that little weasel movement on the ground just to get their hands free of the of the jackal. But what the Scottish guys did really well was, um, and again, bending the laws as, as the best teams do, mm-hmm. uh, they really held the tackle on the ground really firmly, didn't release after they completed the tackle so that the Irish guys, the ball carrier on the ground, couldn't actually twist and contort his body to, to get a really good clean present. And um, I thought Scotland did that really well. And it's a simple little tactic, but it, it actually had a really big effect uh, on that game in Murrayfield. And there were some crucial turnovers against Ireland uh, kind of directly as a result. So I guess it shows that Scotland focusing in on those little skills. And um, I suppose in, in the game, it's easy to get caught up in massive kind of game plans and structures. But a simple little thing like that, I guess, uh, can make a big difference. Yeah, and I think they must have done some good intel on on the referee. Um, because, you know, some, some refs are going to ping you straight away and others will, will give you that couple of seconds there. So so there's obviously been some uh, some analysis there as well. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because then in, in Rome, Ireland were adding even an extra role into their uh, kind of body ball on the ground. Like they had, again, analysed the ref and realised we're going to get away with this. So it was almost kind of, you're almost thinking, geez, he's going to get a penalty against him there. But uh, yeah, a ref analysis really on the ball. And yeah, it shows. It's really interesting to see that between two different games a week after each other. Okay, well... Um Italy haven't uh, gone through this uh, tournament unnoticed uh, after after last weekend's game at Twickenham. Um, we'll, we'll get to get to the no tackle um, call in a minute. But what 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 about some just general attack and defence that Italy's been doing um, under under Conor O'Shea? Yeah, pretty much very poor in the in the first two rounds, and mm. um, probably what we had seen from Italy. And I think Conor O'Shea, although maybe doesn't have too much hair left anymore, he was tearing what what was left out. Um, and maybe wondering, geez, this is a bigger job than I thought. Uh, they're just, they're, they're not as fit as other teams, I don't think. The Italian clubs mm-hmm. at the moment just aren't good setups. I think across the the, the nation of Italy, rugby, they, they just understand that, that it's not good enough and, and the national team is always going to suffer unless they can bring that right up there. So I think they've got to sort out those, the Treviso and Zebra first before fixing anything else, really, um, and get fitter players who can actually defend through multiple phases because Ireland uh, in Rome, for example, you know, they just got to 10 phases and then there was going to be a mistake literally every time. You could nearly bank on it. Um, And that's going to, you know, that's going to be the go-to target for everyone. That's where we're going to discuss the tactic. That's where that tactic came out of is because Conor O'Shea realised if England can get to seven, eight, nine, ten phases, then they're going to score a try every single time. So that's how they put that uh, tackle-only tactic into place. So Mm. I think the, the challenge for Italian rugby is is um, beneath the national level. Um, and I think attacking-wise too, they, they just weren't showing an awful lot of um, what they maybe had trained for because there was individual errors and technical errors uh, in the early kind of phases of their attack. So it was very frustrating to watch, to be honest, in the first two rounds. Yeah, and I think um, I, I, after the weekend, Andre Venter put something out on Twitter saying, uh, you know, and Conor O'Shea as well. I really like the way they're talking in terms of this is a process. It's time. It's uh, it's not an overnight thing. But Andre Venter put a tweet out saying, "Oh, we just wait till we get fitter." And I don't think that was a tweet to his followers. I think that was a tweet to the players um, and, and the organisation that 
you know, where we've got work to do and it's coming kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Like physical fitness, you just can't, like, again, when we get caught up in the game, you, you, you kind of sometimes lose focus of that. But it has kind of, even more so in the media this year, there's been a kind of big um, emphasis on it. Eddie Jones is talking about his kind of tactical periodization or whatever. And, mm. and every single every single team is focused on training at a, an intensi- intensity that is actually higher than what, how they're playing. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, GPS has kind of pushed that forward. Um, I was talking to a guy called John Farrell. He's an Irish guy working with the Georgian Union. Uh, talking to him very recently, and he's talking about how he kind of keeps keeps an eye on that side of things for Georgia, just making sure that they're training at a rate that is higher than match intensity. Mm-hmm. Um, then on the flip side, speaking to someone recently, a player, an Irish player over in France, and he's saying he can't get over the lack of high-speed intensity in their training sessions, and that's actually causing injuries because players need to be up at that level, and they need to be used to that high speed intensity and in france there's still a bit of a culture of being on the pitch for two hours you know at a time and under some of the french coaches and and not not sprinting enough so yeah that's been a really interesting aspect and i don't think italy are are probably not there yet anyway yeah okay great um all right and on to the 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 no tackle call um it was just it's i i've spoken to i it's just polarizing it's like you either love it or you hate it some of the purists hate it um i i just thought it was fascinating i i loved it um I, I think it's a, a one-trick pony. You're not going to be able to play a game like that ever again with that amount of uh, use of the tactic. But you can you can choose when to use it. Maybe in the opposition 22 when they're trying to exit, that's a good time, a low-risk time. But I, I, I just thought it was wonderful and I, I found myself just watching more how, the, not the Italians doing it, but more how the players, the English players were reacting to it. And it was obvious it was the first time they'd ever seen it or been exper- exposed to it. Yeah, it was really fascinating. I was kind of looking into this, and I think the the Championship Canada are playing in the moment, the Rugby Americas. There's mm-hmm. they're using that trial law, aren't they? Where where you actually can't do this anymore. There's like a an offside line formed by one player arriving at the ruck. Um, yeah, they did that so, in the Mitre yeah. Ten too, I believe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, they did that last year as well. So mm-hmm. it's certainly something that has been spoken about by World Rugby and their kind of law review group. And the Chiefs have been <laughs> frustrating opposition since like. 2015 with it and there have been other instances as you mentioned but um yeah it was kind of bizarre to see England struggling to adapt on the pitch I, th- I think there probably was an element of certainly of Hart- uh, Hartley and um, Haskell kind of feigning ignorance almost just trying to kind of almost bully Poit into changing his opinion of it mm. but but they certainly needed to adapt quicker and it was weird that the kind of coaching message didn't go on there um, just to go right through the guts and a really high tempo pick and drive game where you force them to make a ruck or or else we're just going to score through the middle of you. Um, but yeah, I, I loved it as well. I was I was kind of laughing out loud watching it because it was just so oh, I don't know, it was just so genius in an almost evil way. Mm, yeah. um, and it was a, it was a rugby game we'd never ever seen before. And, yeah. and the d- debate and discussion has been just brilliant in the last couple of days that everyone's talking about a tactical element of the game rather than some absolute nonsense storyline about some player or whatever. Um, so I've lo- I've loved the last couple of days, but yeah. interesting interesting to see what what's going to happen. Do you think do you think they will change this at, at the oh, highest level? That would be a knee jerk reaction. I feel I think it's just like you could look at any law in the book and find a little tweak there that you could use. You might not be able to use it as much, but I, I don't. I, I like it. I, I think it creates um, fast thinking players, and if the defence are doing it, then the attack have to be fast thinking as well. How do we how do we um, counter attack this? Well, you know, keeping the ball alive, pick and go, going to your more game. Um, I, I think I, I'd hope they'd be you know 
take a bit of time in, in deliberating about whether to change the law because I, I think there's advantages to keeping it and some disadvantages if they don't. I don't know if I'd like to see internationals played like that to that extent in the future and I don't even th I don't think that was Italy's intention anyhow. But uh, yeah, I, I think I think there's room for it. Yeah, definitely. I think yeah, anything like that, any fresh thinking, and um, it was a really like it was a really ballsy decision, wasn't it? Like yeah. to actually go and pursue it for the whole game, it could have spectacularly backfired. And they were really disciplined in how they did it. It was it was a really well coached team in that in that aspect mm, of the game. You had absolutely. like three, two or three guys just in behind the the tackle as it was, waiting rabbits, just a little like a, yeah, them. that's. Yeah. That's it. I'm loving all the terminology as well. I have to say the, the fox is brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it'll be it'll be fascinating to see what now happens in like in, in the next couple of games. And um, I think everyone's anticipating more instances of it. Even speaking to a couple of amateur rugby players over here, a colleague of mine, Rory O'Connor with the Irish Independent, he was saying his game uh, midweek this week was uh, it was a kind of ju junior four match, but there was couple of instances of tackle only tactics so okay. it's great and i think i think everyone's engaged with it in a, in a really good way um i agree with you i don't see a an instant change happening and i don't think there should be um definitely teams can figure it out and if italy do it again on that scale i think they'll be probably punished i don't think yeah. they will try to do it on that no. scale again it was, yeah it was a brilliant one-off match and i think it'll go down in kind of rugby folklore a little bit i think so and i think like, it's weird one of the things i really enjoyed about it was just looking at Poit, he just looked like he was having an absolute ball out there. He was loving it. He was absolutely <laughs> loving Because, he, he, yeah, he got to show off, oh, listen, I know the law here. You guys don't know anything. Yeah, he's quoting um, law numbers and he's, he's telling Haskell yeah. he's not a coach, so he can't help him. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. I just thought it was brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. One of the things that was interesting was that when Launchbury, I think it was 29th or 30th, 30th minute, down the England 22, when he grabbed Luke McLean mm -hmm. um, and tried to create a rook, which mm -hmm. we've seen David Pocock, rather, sorry, mm -hmm. um, do in, in the past for the Brumbies against the Chiefs um, and then the Chiefs were pinged for offside but Poit told him you know you can't do that um, and I, f having followed up a little bit on it I, that's the directive that the referees were getting from World Rugby is that the defending team actually has to actively engage and, and look to form a ruck so mm. that grabbing of a player you can't do that anymore according to the latest directive so it'll be interesting to see again another option reduced how, how the attacking team uh, reacts mm. to that and also, yeah, the the rabbit or the fox—I can't remember what they what they called it—but that was a new directive as well. He he can't he or she can't come within a meter of the the scrum half. Uh, otherwise, you're technically not coming through a gate. So they were Italy were obviously very very across that um, and, and very well prepared for it. So basically, yeah, the chiefs the chiefs just went around the back and and uh, stood right beside the scrum half. Mm. This was against the Stormers. 2015 and they and they just smashed him as soon as he picked up the ball uh Jacob Paper was the ref it was yeah the the stores weren't happy there was you know those big angry South African sides yeah. didn't, didn't like it but um mm. yeah Jacob Paper was the ref and he kind of spoke to Liam Essam and said you can't approach you can't approach the ball from that angle it, there's a tackle zone I don't think he used the term tackle zone but I think that's what referees are using so right. one meter kind of radius around the tackle apart from if you're coming through the gate which isn't even in the law book but again referees mm of these terms so yeah I think to have that there is absolutely uh, crucial because if you can come around and, and smash the scrum half well then things get really really ugly so um, yeah I think standing a metre back is, is probably a fair kind of balance on it yeah yeah okay well on, on to England um, you know the, they're probably not playing too far away from traditional English rugby they might be getting a bit more width uh, off guys like Ford um, 
but what, and you know, still very set piece dominant. Uh, what, what are you seeing in England in terms of uh, attack and defence? Probably hard to hard to go on last last weekend's game because it was quite disruptive. Um, but uh, in the in the in the two games before, they're not. Then you know, as Eddie Jones has said, they're winning ugly, um, and they're they're on their way to eighteen, which will be a, a mouth watering uh, one at Aviva if they if they if they get past next round. Um, what what are you seeing specifically with England? Yeah, it's it's incredible run like ten consecutive Six Nations wins. I think yeah, they're just they're on a great, great winning run, and they don't really ever look like losing. Um, you, you mentioned Ford there. His combination with Farrell, I think, is really developed. Having two out halves in the team, ten and twelve, mm-hmm. um, just opens up everything for them in phase play. And maybe they haven't got to where they want to with that, but I think we've seen signs of it. Even something like the Elliot Daly try. The winning try against Wales when when Jonathan Davies kind of oh, kicked out, yeah, he's out, failed to find touch. Yeah. But two just incredible passers of the ball, mm. just to, to get across to the other edge of the pitch yeah. and give Daly a chance. You know, Alex Cuthbert obviously didn't cover himself in glory, and the Welsh certainly could have done better to get guys on their feet before they kicked the ball, uh, taking an extra phase in that regard. I thought it was interesting to hear Sean Edwards, the defence coach, talk about that after the game. You know, we 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 dropped out of our system where we would have taken an extra phase before kicking to get guys on our feet. Um, that was interesting but but th- those two passers uh, that's like a, an open field kind of counter-attacking example but even in face play the two of them are, are really good uh, dragging in defenders delaying their passes um, and then when Ford goes out the back door to his 12 it's going, it's another out half who can make another good decision on top of that um, so I think it really adds to their attacking thread and I think the more that develops the more we'll see their game open up beyond just that set piece and, mm-hmm. and the kind of physicality um, but I, you know when they come to Dublin on the last weekend, we're all hoping that it's going to be playing for the championship. And jeez, th- those big forwards are like Itoje and Launchbury and Laws. They're unbelievably they're powerful. Mm. Yeah, they're really good technically. Their tackling is really good. And yeah, I'd, I'd be a little bit worried um, if the game was played in poor conditions because I think around the fringes of rocks and cl- tighter in, they're, they're very, very strong. So yeah, I think that 10-12 combo developing um is going to be really important for them. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. All right, and uh, on to everyone's favourite team, Ireland. Um, pretty, very a very Joe Schmidt style team. Very reliant on set piece dominance. Um, you know, with with really creative. Uh, I think the terms power plays that, that's used over there uh, off that first phase and maybe a couple of phases after. Um, big ball runners like CJ Stander and uh, Omani and O'Brien and, and those kind of guys getting getting over the gain line first and then you know really looking to stretch stretch the attack. I think I think uh, you know relying heavily on Connor Murray's box kicks. He's got to be one of the best in the world at it, uh, if not the best. And um, yeah, some real subtle differences too when uh, when Sexton is in or out. Like the, the Sexton loop play. Uh, Really opened up the French on the weekend, whereas um, when it's Paddy Jackson, it's uh, some some subtleties, some subtle differences in the attack as well. What do you what are you seeing? Yeah, definitely. Like Paddy Jackson's a really good international out half, and mm-hmm, I don't think anyone praising Sexton like it's not a, a slide on him. Sexton is just at another level. His decision making is is incredibly good. Like you know, he's ninety five percent brilliant decisions. Um, it's interesting you mentioned the Paris plays. I've actually just been doing a bit of analysis today on on a particular one of them which dates all the way back to 2012, Leinster against Clermont in the Heineken Cup final. It's the one where they kind of strike in midfield and then they bounce back against the grain and they run a kind of dummy loop off one of their forwards with Conor Murray or the scrum half coming around and then they send an inside pass to the fullback. 
Um, you know, if you saw it in action, I think you probably recognize it. And it's interesting to follow over the years. I went through a couple of examples and how he's kind of slightly tweaked it. He added a phase in here. He, he actually struck off scrum a couple of times and went to the width and tried it there rather than center of the pitch. And then against France, they added in a fourth phase. So he kind of took France through another phase, tried to get them lazy or, or even folding lazily around the corner. Um, and they should, you know, fifth minute, six minutes rather, they actually should have scored off it. Carney, Rob Carney fell just kind of going through. And if he had gone through there, I think it would have been a very different game because there was mm. support runners actually ahead of the ball kind of waiting for the line break, as they always are. So, yeah, that, that's always a really interesting aspect to follow with Ireland because Joe Schmidt's kind of tactical brain is just really very the, the very best in the world, probably. So I always enjoy kind of digging into that aspect of their game. Um, but, yeah, they, they, they've kind of developed a little bit more in the last probably two years since the Rugby World Cup when they did have a lot of one-out runners and mm. a lot of... A lot of passes in their game, but the passes were just to a, a forward crashing in into contact. The defense, yeah, yeah. There you go. Like um, that's developing. Like the rate of one out runners is dropping now. Um, Joe Schmidt was happy to point out after the first two rounds, after they had played Italy in France, now that they had the, the there were three other teams who had had more one one out runners than them. But no, it definitely has improved in that regard. And I think they're trying to play, especially kind of from halfway to the opposition twenty two. Uh, you mentioned kind of sex and adding, adding subtleties. It was really interesting to see them use a kind of tip on pass and then out the back door after that to mm, Sexton. Yeah. Just to give that time just in behind those kind of first four defenders um, and then go from there. They didn't manage to cut them down, cut the French apart rather too often. But again, I think you're seeing those subtleties added in game by game and, and definitely a better variety to their attack. They're always going to be very focus on the kind of rock quality and ball carrying quality in the 22 and, and like they are brilliant at those things you you see you know it's easy just to say oh they're one out team but actually not appreciate the skills that are involved in that like guys cu- closing off the kind of far corner of a rock tying in defenders that way and uh, mm. the kind of latching or leeching they use pretty much every carry to kind of get a two-on-one uh, in the tackle and um, their footwork is really good they pirouette uh, they step back in inside to get a weak shoulder, so they're really good at that kind of stuff. And I don't think they'll ever go out of their game. Yeah, um, they probably they probably they probably off offset that um, instead of uh, offloading. They they're not a team that offloads a lot. No, no, they all, aren't. They really. still aren't. They're slightly the numbers have slightly gone up in that regard, but they're still a little bit more kind of hesitant than other teams, and and they play place a massive focus on on keeping possession and getting through phases. So yeah, I don't think they're going to see. Um, I don't think they're ever going to be throwing the ball when it's a 50-50. But yeah, they, they do offload when they're in behind the tackle and it's, mm-hmm. a, and it's a good offloading opportunity. Um, yeah, defensively, Adney Farrell has probably changed things up a little bit and mm. they're very aggressive now. And I think they're probably not as focused on not giving up line breaks. I think like, obviously you never want your defense to be broken down, but their scramble defense is, is really excellent uh, to the point that it looks like they work on that a lot. Um, and I think they're happy to take a, a bit more of a risk to get a big tackle and a turnover opportunity than they were before. So he's added that um, into the defensive mindset as well. He's, he's a big character and he's he kind of drives them emotionally as well, I guess. Yeah, I think uh, I think we saw in, in the Scotland game, the opening Scotland game, the two, two things that Ireland really are strong at is their line speed and their set-piece dominance. And both of those aspects were just a bit off for whatever reason on the day and... So if, if teams have got a chance, that's that's where they they'll be targeting. Yeah, absolutely. And again, like th- those Scotland examples, like two tries come down to minor things again, like within a system. Like 
guys just not folding around the corner early enough or maybe not the, the edge defender not dragging enough width into the defensive line and big kind of I suppose big errors and big try concessions can come out of that stuff. But um, one one little interesting thing, again, I just looking through their games today, uh, one of the things they're doing in the opposition 22, uh, and I think this actually was the the tactic that actually kind of sparked Italy's thinking around their tackle-only uh, tactic, because Conor O'Shea mentioned it was Conor Murray incident in, in Rome where they felt they should have had a penalty. Mm, yeah, that's right. But the referees explained, you know, this is this this was okay. There was no ruck. Basically, Conor Murray, you, you'll see him if, you, if you're if you watching the opposition 22 when they're going to exit. He kind of stands, he sweeps in behind the line, but as soon as the scrum half gets to the ruck, he starts sprinting towards the defensive line and his timing is exceptional, actually. It's really interesting to watch. He's actually bursting up out of the defensive line and getting massive kick kick pressure or massive pressure on the kicker rather um, and he, a, a fair few times now he's kind of managed to make the exit kick really poor by kind of turning the kicker in field or or whatever there but I think that was the incident where probably the referee clarified look, look there's no actual ruck there and, and Ireland probably didn't even realise themselves I don't think mm-hmm. and he kind of rushed up uh, Italy thought it should be an offside but yeah an interesting little tactic and again Ireland's counter or kick return game isn't particularly strong but as that develops I think Conor Murray getting pressure on the kickers like that will be re- really interesting. Yeah, absolutely, and I think you can you know um, see what what happens. We'll you know go on to Wales now, and um, you know when when it is a poor exit, uh, what can happen when uh, when your exit isn't spot on against a world class back three, and you know that happened when with the Wales versus England game. Yeah, absolutely. So it was prime example of um, just not getting people on your feet, um, uh, just to follow up the kick like even more so even more important than the kicking quality is probably that that follow-up and um yeah a really poor try to concede at that level even though it took really exceptional skills as we've mentioned from Ford and Farrell to pass the ball mm-hmm. to Daly and a good finish but um yeah it was kind of symptomatic of Wales Six Nations so far mm-hmm. loads of brilliant stuff in that game um but just simple kind of simple mistake that costs them absolutely dearly and the same mm-hmm. against Scotland again they, yeah. they, they'll they be frustrated where they are and Ireland are going to Cardiff uh, uh, for round four and it's going to be pretty oh, yeah. uh, that'll be a nasty one pretty big backlash from Wales and uh, yeah. they'll be ready you know just on Wales what do you, what are, what are they like in terms of um, outside of Italy in terms of unforced errors uh, those kind of stats are they are they one of the higher teams in that area because you saw a lot of that in the second half of Scotland that was they let Scotland get into that game or you know no disrespect no disrespect to Scotland they they played amazing rugby but on the back of a lot of errors too yeah I don't actually have the stats in front of me but certainly the impression would be that they are they're right up there in the, in that in that department and and errors that are like costing them tries and costing them big territory and, and um, good possession. So, um, yeah, that's a massive focus for Wales. They're like, they're such a strong athletic team. And that was the thing Joe Smith's been, to- Joe Schmidt's been talking about since, um, since he started prepping for this game. They're such good athletes that um, any let up in your kind of defensive line speed or whatever, whatever's involved there, your tackle technique, and, and they'll, they'll absolutely take advantage of that. Their centers are so big and strong, even their wing, uh, George North is just a guy who you do not want uh, to get get ball in space because he can smash straight over the top of you. Um, so yeah, I think it's going to be a tricky one for Ireland, but I, I fancy him to win in Cardiff. Before the championship, I thought it might be the kind of stumbling block for them, mm. but based on what we've seen so far, I don't think Wales are at the very strongest. They've actually tried to have a bit of a, um, a development in terms of their game plan, and they've always been criticised for that kind of 
I suppose Warren Ball has been the easy kind of moniker for it, but but certainly playing around the corner all the way to one touchline, exhaust that, and then go back. Whereas I think now they're trying to encourage their decision makers to do exactly that and make decisions for themselves. Well, I was gonna I was gonna go on to that, like uh, you because I'm I'm seeing differences definitely um, between Halley and Gatlin uh, in in attack. You you are as well. Yeah, I think so, and I I think it kind of had to go that way anyway. And even mm-hmm. if Gatlin was there, I think it would have probably developed that way, but. You're certainly seeing more of Howley's philosophy. I think um, it was interesting uh, to uh, talk to him at, when they announced him as the Lions coach. He, you know, I asked him about the attacking philosophy with the Lions. Is it going to be similar to 2013 in Australia when a lot, when a lot of criticism came there the, the Lions' way for the way they mm-hmm. attacked? It was kind of blunt force. But uh, he said, you know, like that. That's not my philosophy. You you work with what you have in your in your team and. Um, I think we're seeing more of that now in the way Italy, or sorry, Wales are are trying to add a bit of width and um, allow their players to make a few more decisions on the pitch. Yeah, well, that that probably leads me to my next question. Um, you know, I think that's classic um, a triage of of how how you coach a rugby team is rather than starting with your attacking and defensive philosophies, you start with what are the bodies that you have and what are their skill sets and then build from there. Um, based on what you're seeing in the Six Nations, you, you got any any predictions on how you might see the Lions attacking in their New Zealand tour? Yeah, it, it's going to be absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Like I, I do think that More we're going to... rugby, awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It never ends. I'm looking yeah. forward to getting down to that side of the world. I uh, had a really good trip down there kind of last September, October, and mm-hmm. I was only there for 11 days, but the amount you learn from um, even just casual conversations and, and the coaches over there are incredible. I had some really good oh, visits great. like Crusaders and Hurricanes, and, and they're quite open, even if they're a little bit kind of suspicious of what you want to know, but mm-hmm. uh, the, yeah, the knowledge is incredible, so looking forward to that. Um, right. In terms of how the Lions play, uh, I do think they'll be like reliant on what have been perceived as the strengths up here in terms of set-piece being physically dominant and um, quite structured, I suppose, in their play and maybe a little bit like Ireland in terms of using a lot of uh, pre-prescribed uh, strike plays. But I think there's a realisation now that the individual players are actually good enough in terms of their skills um, and decisions to actually play a bit more in broken field and, and not actually just kick the ball away when, mm-hmm. when they lose their shape and structure. Um, so I think that will be a bit of a shift under Gatland, probably who has been uh, quite a prescribed kind of coach in attack maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. What, like, what do you reckon? What are you, what are you seeing? Oh, I think, I think the same. I think, uh, you know, why would you kick the ball away when you've got guys like Hogg and uh, Sexton and Connor Murray to, to, and, and some massive ball runners? You know, you've got to think Atoje, uh, Laws, a, a bunch of names, the, the, the Grey brothers from Scotland. You know, you've got some big body ball runners and you've got some excellent outside backs. Um, I think I think it's going to be a different a different Lions team than you saw in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree completely with that. I think they'll they'll always have those foundational strengths. Like even look at Ireland's win against Chicago in in November, and like they got a lot of praise, deservedly so, for for being quite um, ambitious and how they went about it and actually targeting. Listen, they're going to score this amount of tries. We got to score more than them, um, and not just take points and kick penalties. Um, so I think that'll be really important, that kind of mindset of not just trying to limit what the All Blacks do anymore, recognising that they are going to score tries and we're going to also score a lot of tries. Mm-hmm. Um, that may come in different methods, though. I think Ireland, like, in that game, three of their tries came pretty much directly from Malls. Um, 
uh, including the first one and including that Simon Zebo one in, in the left corner in the second half. So maybe slightly different st- uh, types of tries, but certainly a, a more of a try scoring attitude. I think. Yeah, great. Okay, well, on, on the last question, um, you know, it leads to tries, and you do a bit of stuff around try scoring t- trends in rugby. What, what are some of the, the latest trends that you've been seeing? Yeah, so the most recent teams I've done, actually, the All Blacks I did in November, because uh, they scored so many... They, they scored tries, a few tries, yeah. So many bloody tries last year. <laughs> 60 tries and 10 tests before yeah, November, so oh my God. It, it was incredible, yeah. Like, for them, a lot of time when, it, when you do this, you're kind of backing up your own impression, but for them, the, the key possession platform were turnover and kick return. Mm-hmm. They were incredibly good uh, at converting those opportunities. As, as you know, when you watch the game... Like um, I have the stats here. Thirty-five percent tries come from turnovers, so that so that's a key focus for them, and something they obviously train a lot on. It's not just individual skill; they mm-hmm. they have, as you mentioned, worked hard on 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 being good at um, having guys in the right places when they turn ball over, and but that even builds into their defensive strategy, which goes back to the very start. And in terms of how the game has trended uh, in recent years, is that your attacking strategy is built into that defense, so that even even if you get a turnover, you have the right guys in the right places and, and they can find them. I always think of the example of the Chiefs and it was Wayne Smith, I think, talking about it. That Aaron Cruden is always in the right place when we're counter-attacking and that's not by accident. Mm. Um, because when we defend, he's always out there uh, towards the edge and we'll find him quickly when we can and he'll he'll create something. So that was really interesting at all. And oh, I think you're seeing that with the All Blacks as well. Um, is that, you know, we defend to score tries and I think everyone's kind of on that mindset now but mm. looking at Ireland then just before the Six Nations was interesting because they're such a different team 58% of their tries from a line out possession platform yeah. um, only one from kick return there was eight from turnover but the eight turnover tries included I actually termed when they kicked to a team and the other team attempted to gain possession maybe had their hand on the ball for a split second but dropped the ball um, and there's an instant kind of turnover back to Ireland so there was a lot of kick pressure in those tries but the line out is an unbelievably important platform for Joe Smith because mm-hmm. he can plan out and plot out all those kind of set-piece plays and the power plays you mentioned earlier on. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're the, they're the kind of two big projects. I'd love to do more yeah. of it, but it's, it's, it's very yeah. time-consuming. Um, Charlie Morgan, who's doing great work um, over in England and, and Wales and Scotland, more, more so on the UK teams, um, he did a, did a great one in England, and it was a little bit more similar to Ireland's trends um, in terms of you know, there was line out and set piece and all that, uh, scrum, sorry, uh, those kind of platforms rather than turnover and mm. um, kick return. So yeah, there's, there's different trends. I don't think one's better than the other. Again, as you said, like you, you work with what you have and clearly Ireland and England think that they have players who are really strong in those areas and, and building off those um, platforms. Uh, and certainly with Ireland, you know, 16 of the, of the tries, 16 of the 36 tries they scored in the study were in, had actually started in the in the opposition five meter or just slightly outside it, so oh, wow. they were very focused on kicking down uh, into the opposition territory, yeah. winning penalties and kicking to there. Uh, whereas New Zealand, of their sixty tries, were scored starting in the opposition five meter, yeah. whereas they had sixteen from between the halfway and the opposition twenty-two, and fifteen from between the halfway and their own twenty-two. So very good at striking from further at the pitch, and uh, very good at striking early. In the phases, uh, again, I have the numbers here. The zero ruck tries was uh, 24 out of 60. Wow. So, like, without a single breakdown, mm. which is really impressive. And um, 
and again, it's something that you probably you, you would have had as your own impression watching them that the fact that they strike to score every single time they get their hands on the ball, um, it's a really uh, really clinical kind of mindset. Yeah, and I think that going back to our last question there on how the lines will play, if if you kick to them and it stays in field, it, it better be contestable. And if it's not, get ready for it coming back with some serious interest and it won't be kicked back, you wouldn't think it will be coming through the hands. And, yeah, so that would obviously dictate the, the style of play that, that they'll have. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to be an awesome uh, awesome tour. And, you know, I, I think the crazy amount of games that they play, but it's... Uh, it's it's going to be fantastic for for viewers. What be your what be your impression? Like you know, it's very early to be making predictions, but it was interesting. I thought before November, when the All Blacks were on that incredible run, and I guess they still are in a way, but you know, there was a lot of doom and gloom here about oh, the Lions are going to get hammered over there. What, what do you kind of think of it now after Ireland maybe beat them in November and and seeing the the strength of the Six Nations? Would you be a bit more positive about the Lions' chances? Uh, I, I think uh, the Chicago game was was amazing and you know just such a great victory. But I think um, they when they lose they don't tend to lose again uh, very often after that. Um, and New Zealand at home, um, you know you just need to look at the Wallabies record there at Eden Park alone to to realise that that's a that's a that's a beast that that's very hard to uh, tame and. Yeah, I, I'd be predicting uh, New Zealand to, to take it personally. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a, if the Lions can eke one out, but I also wouldn't be surprised if if New Zealand win three nothing. Yeah, definitely. Like it's a it's a bizarrely difficult thing to do. I think. I'm, like I've been in the process recently of just uh, like organising my own travels around the place, and you're you're uprooting every couple of days, moving to a new city. Uh, I'm not going to be training or playing rugby matches, and I'm kind of like, God, this is going to be a bit of an effort. So. You can only imagine for a rugby team and a coach oh, yeah. trying with such a short space of time. It's an incredibly difficult challenge now, especially considering what we mentioned earlier on about the importance of, say, France getting more time with the players, a couple extra days. So yeah, like the odds are massively against the Lions. Mm-hmm. But it'll yeah, it'll be epic, uh, no matter what. All right. Well, we always end the the show with the the same final four questions. When you were a kid growing up, uh, who was one of your favourite players uh, going around that you like to watch? Yeah, I mentioned uh, my kind of fondness for French rugby mm-hmm. there a while ago. And Yannick Josion, the yeah. France and Toulouse Centre, was probably my kind of, I guess, a role model. Because I, I actually played 12 and I'm, I'm tall, I'm 6'4". So he was kind of a guy that I almost looked to model my game on. Um, he was a lanky centre like me, but with a bit more weight, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was well able to dominate the collisions. But he also had a, a subtlety to his game. Um, certainly with the offloading, his offloading ability was just exceptional. Pretty much every time he went into contact, there was a successful offload almost, uh, or else like a pre-contact pass because he could combine that kind of physical power with with really good skill. Yeah, really, really enjoyed watching him play. Great. Okay. And what, what about now? Who's one of your, your favorite players going around? Yeah, I mentioned him earlier on. Owen Farrell is a guy I'm really enjoying watching at the mm-hmm. moment. Yeah. An out, an out half in, re, by, by trade with Saracens, but playing at 12 for England. And um, he's a guy I actually, interesting, I didn't, really rate him all that much when he first came through. I actually thought he was a bit limited and I didn't think he had kind of vision or creativity, but like it just goes to show that there are things that you can improve because mm. now he's spotting passes and he's delaying passes beautifully and he's creating chances for others, both for Saracens and at times for England. So like he's massively improved in that area. And I had thought 
quite stupidly on my part that it wasn't something that you could really grow in your game but he's mm. a prime example of it and he's really co combative as well he's really yeah, strong he's got some starch in his defense huh <laughs> that's it like yeah uh, and he's not the biggest guy but geez he can hit as well and he's yeah. not afraid to throw himself in there so yeah, yeah enjoy his dad's probably helped him out a bit with that i'd say that's it a good, a good mentor a good guy great okay well on, on to coaches who's uh who's a high profile coach that you like what they're doing and the way they work with their teams yeah a, a guy who i actually I haven't met. I don't. I haven't really got much uh, chance to kind of get exposed to his actual methods on the training pitch or anything. But Wayne Smith, who I mentioned earlier on, is mm -hmm. someone I've always really enjoyed reading about or, or hearing about from other coaches. And um, everything, everything, basically every detail that I've heard of him or from him, or videos he's done, or coaching seminars where you've maybe got a secondhand video for someone. Uh, he's just really clear and concise, really intelligent, really deep thinking. Um, but also, yeah, with that edge, the clarity and um, kind of distilling the message down into one um, central point. I think mm. you probably know yourself, like as a coach. Um, so important. Yeah, there you go. Like it's, 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 it's incredibly easy. And even when my work with writing, like it's something that I, I probably struggle with quite a bit is being concise. I definitely struggle with it. There's so much you want to say, but yeah. I'm trying to teach myself almost a little bit just to find the really central point and go with that. Um, and he's a guy I've, I've seen that even like talking about culture, he just boils it right down to the main points. And um, yeah, a really, a really influential guy on other coaches from from everything I've heard. So he comes up often in the show, and uh, yeah, I'd love to love to have a chat with him for sure because yeah, I, I feel the same. All right, and then final question: um, Who's one? Of, who's a grassroots coach in in your local community uh, that, that you feel is doing great work and deserves a shout out? Yeah, well, not really gra not totally grassroots, but a guy who's working in the development side of Irish rugby is, is Nigel Carroll. And, okay, um, yeah. He's the Con uh, Connacht Academy manager, and he's also the Ireland under-20s coach at the moment. Um, and again, a, a, a really good thinker about the game, really smart, um, attacking kind of mind as well. Uh, and, and a really, imp we, we, you know, just before we started, we spoke about the importance of uh, coaches underneath the very top tier and, and how vital they are to to actually having really good players come through at test level. And I think he's got a really good mindset around that. He, he's not always focused on winning. He's not always focused on doing exactly the game plan that he thinks might be the best in this particular game. It's more so um, developing the player, developing yeah, the individual. Like that, um, and, yeah, exactly. Like, again, I, I'm, I'm sure you all experience it with yourself, but he's kind of, it's, it's almost selfless in a way, I guess, to, to think like that. But He's had chances to go to kind of senior teams at, on professional contracts, but he's happy enough doing what he's doing. And, and we've seen with Connacht, especially recently, he's getting loads of good players oh, through. It's unbelievable so. what's coming out of there. It's been fantastic. Yeah, so so he's a guy like those kind of guys in, in Irish rugby and every rugby ever really uh, are really kind of valuable. Perfect. All right. Well, um, it's it's been it's been a long one, but I've I've enjoyed it, no doubt. And uh, you know, I really want to thank you for coming on the show. And massive thanks for for giving up uh, an hour of your time to to talk about rugby. And you know, really excited about the last two games of the uh, last two rounds of the the Six Nations. And uh, yeah, hope hope you enjoy it and enjoy your your Lions tour as well. Yeah. Cheers. I've really really enjoyed the chat. I hope it wasn't waffling on too much. But uh, when I get talking rugby, I find it hard to stop at times. And <laughs> Keep up the great work. I'm really looking forward to uh, all the future podcasts. And, and again, I'm flattered that you asked me to come on. So thanks very much. Awesome. All right. Cheers. Thanks very much, Murray. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner Podcast. If you 
enjoyed the show, please leave a review via iTunes and keep listening for the next episode. You can also follow us on Twitter at RugbyCoachSCNR or via the website at TheRugbyCoachesCorner.com. Until next time, keep sharing ideas to make the game better.